Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Faze. In today's podcast, Pastor Manoj Ratata talks about his own personal journey to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and the miraculous healing of his son. Manoj, we're here in Barking Baptist. Uh, your, your role here at Barking Baptist, what do you do? So essentially, I'm the pastor of this church. It's a small family church. Uh, uh, people from different ethnic backgrounds that come here, huge number of children in this place. And it's just a place where we want to build family and reach out to the local community. Which is odd that you're the pastor here, not for you personally, but your business background, aren't you? So how, did, how come you're a pastor with a business background? Well, it, was, it really wasn't the plan that I would become the pastor of this church, but that's what God wanted me to do. But yeah, my background is in business. Uh, I used to be a property trader. Uh, got involved in property when I was uh, in my 20s. Uh, I really wanted to be like my grandfather. Uh, I was told these uh, tales of his rise to riches. Uh, I was fed these tales as a kid and, and how he had kind of you know, built this big property empire. And so really, you know, from a young age, those kind of desires, that yearning to be involved in business started to emerge and just got involved in buying, buying my house initially and, uh, and then just moving on to buying properties and then just sort of developing from there. So you were, I know you were flying um, overseas and somebody was sitting in a, in a seat in front of you who was from this church. You were thinking about, you know, maybe God was calling you here? Well, yeah, I, I came and spoke in this church uh, last year, actually, not thinking that I was coming here to sort of become a part of this church. I was just here as a visiting speaker. But it's interesting, as I was sort of driving back home that day, I just felt a sense um, that I needed to come and serve this church. And it's quite interesting because I came into Barking um, to actually look at property. Um, before I was a follower of Jesus, I, I came here to buy property. I didn't actually buy property. And so it felt strange then being invited to come and speak in this church. And I felt that possibly I was here to invest spiritually. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and essentially what happened uh, is I prayed to God because I felt this sense that I was meant to support this church. Got on a plane the following day after praying, asking God for a clear sign and there was somebody from the church in the row in front that basically asked me the question. Well, well, they said that they knew me because I'd come and spoken in this church and said, why don't you come and be our, uh, our pastor? That's a pretty significant sign. A very, very big <laughs> sign. I'd, I'd asked God for an enormous sign because it was a really strange yeah. uh, sense because I live on the other end of London. I wasn't planning to sort of lead this church, but I know God put something on my heart for this church and for this community. Uh, it's an area of huge economic deprivation, but a lot of money is being ploughed into it, and there's a lot of need. And uh, yeah, God did something in my heart for this place. What's your family background? What's your uh, ethnic background? So I'm, I, I'm, I was born and raised a, a Hindu. We're part of the Gujarati community that uh, migrated from, uh, from India to East Africa, and then from East Africa into the UK. And actually, a lot of the East African Asians came to the UK because, well, if they were based in uh, Uganda, um, they were, you know, chucked out of Uganda in 1972 by Idi Amin. And also a number of Asians moved from Kenya into the UK as well in the late 60s. And so we're part of uh, that community. We're economic migrants. That's probably the best way to describe us. Well, do you remember arriving? What was it like? Well, the thing is, actually, I was born in the UK, okay. but it was my father who was... Uh, you know, who, who came to the UK in, in late 60s, and my mother came early 70s, and her, her family came over after losing, losing everything in, in Uganda. Um, so I was born here, I've, I'm, I'm British Asian, basically, but I have lived in Kenya as well, so I've got a sense of, 
mm. what it's like to be living in that part of, uh, of the world as well. Now, I know uh, you've written a book, and the book is called Filthy Rich, which is kind of an interesting title. But it was sort of your motivation, wasn't it? It wasn't that an, a, a motivation to be wealthy. It was actually that notion of being filthy rich. Yes. Give, give us your motivation then. Well, the thing, you know, we, we moved out to, um, to Nairobi in Kenya when I was nine years old. So my family had moved to the UK, lived in the UK, and then we moved you know, to Kenya. And the reason was because economically things were tough in the UK. My father was a civil engineer and had, uh, had lost his job. And an opportunity came up for him to join his brother in the family business. And this was, I mean, I mean this was too good an opportunity to miss. You know, brothers working together, running a business together in construction and, and swimming pool business as well. And so we went out to East Africa with the dream of making money. The reality was that we ended up in more financial difficulty in Kenya. You know, things didn't quite work out for my family and, uh, and I used to see my mother slaving away in the kitchen to, uh, well, baking cakes to make ends meet. And so from an early age, I started to think to myself, you know, money is really important. It's a problem in my family. We, it, it wasn't that we ever went hungry, but there was always the stress of, were we going to have enough food at the end of the week? because income wasn't always coming in regularly. And uh, I mean, after 10 years of that, you know, my parents eventually separated, unfortunately, mm. as a result of all that pressure. And so money just became important to me, but not just having a little bit of money. I wanted to have enormous amount of money. I wanted to essentially be filthy rich. So I kind of signed up to um, that whole kind of life uh, vision um, from an early age. How did it go? In terms of property, in terms of making money, well, you know what? My life did a bit of a detour for a while. I, I came over to the UK. The plan was to get good grades in my A-levels, which would get me to a good university to study business or economics. But the thing is, I was, I was fooling around too much. Uh, and, and, and my parents were back in East Africa. It took them two years um, to get over here. So I was by myself, independent. So, you know, my life did a bit of a detour. I, I ended up studying English at university. It wasn't the plan. Um, but I did better in English than economics. Um, and then I ended up falling into teaching for a while. But, you know, all that time I was in that world, it was like, you know, this isn't really what I was meant to be doing. You know, I was really called, I, I felt, to be a businessman like my grandfather. I felt it was in my blood. And, um, and then the opportunity arose. You know, I bought my first house in a scabby part of, uh, of London in Wandsworth. Wandsworth is very nice, but if you're near Wandsworth one-way roundabout system, lots of hustle and bustle, it's, it's not great. And nobody wanted to live on this road because it had a council depot at the back and a railway line at one end. But that was my sort of initial plunge into property because I, I thought to myself, the property prices on this road are so cheap compared to East Putney in London. Let me just take the gamble and see what happens. And that's what, and that's what I did, you know, it was that first bit of risk taking that enabled me to take more and more and more risks. Let, let's jump forward. <laughs> when it was going well, what did it look like? Well, the reason it went well, um, I mean, just to give you an idea of how the, um, how the business sort of developed, I started buying uh, off-plan properties, which is a, a, effectively going to a builder uh, and saying, look, you're building 100 apartments here. Let me take all 100 off you. It's going to complete in 18 months' time. So I, I exchanged contracts uh, on all of those properties and then I sell on the properties to investors. And the thing is that because I've got all the properties in that block, I've, I've monopolized, and so I can control the pricing. 
And that's how the business developed. Our business was effectively buying and selling, you know. And uh, during those years when the property market was rising, you know, everybody wanted a, a slice of the property pie. And the thing is, it wasn't just investors from the UK, but people from overseas wanted to invest in London and, and in the northern cities because the market was just, you know, was growing. Could you see yourself then as filthy rich? No, the thing is, I, I was clearly very, very wealthy because I was trading property so quickly and uh, I developed a system where I wasn't having to put so much money into the properties because I had this queue of investors that I would exchange contracts with, this, with the builder and literally 24 hours later, I've, I've exchanged contracts with a group of investors uh, that are buying from me. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a crazy, crazy world. It was a crazy lifestyle. As, as you can imagine, you know, I, I was a teacher, bought my first property and within a few years, we were hmm. you know, buying millions and millions of pounds worth of property across across the UK, it, it went to my head. Yeah. You know, it changed me as a person. Um, my family didn't recognize me, you know, friends just thought I'd become arrogant and ruthless. And, uh, and I spent most of my time, you know, working crazy hours and then, you know, living crazy life, uh, a crazy life outside in the evenings as well, you know, eating with people, networking, and just getting involved in all the wrong stuff, basically. Yeah. So, in the middle of that, you have the 2008 crash. That impacted you financially. Um, but I actually want to skip over that a bit because there was another thing that really impacted you personally, and it was your son. Yeah, I mean, things just sort of crumbled around me so quickly. You know, like you said, you know, we had the, the financial crash of 2008, you know, the mortgage market collapsing. What do you do in that situation? You're basically in an, in an earthquake because your business model is just, is just gone. Uh, and that happened in 2008. But my son, uh, in 2008, when he was, uh, he'd just turned two, um, was very, very ill. Now, he'd been hospitalized on many occasions with breathing difficulties. Uh, I think it was six times he'd been in hospital, being given the nebulizer and being kept in there. And, and some children are just sickly, aren't they? You know, they just, that's just the way that they're born. And, uh, but in my son's case, when he turned two, I got a phone call from my wife. She was in an ambulance saying, you know, get to the hospital quick because his breathing is becoming labored. And he'd been at the, uh, you know, the doctors earlier and they'd call for the ambulance. And I, I, I just, you know, got in the car and, and, and got there. And, uh, and we knew the drill. I just thought, look, they're gonna give him the nebulizer again. They'll keep him in for three or four days and he'll be fine. Um, but on that particular occasion in February, 2008, the nebulizer failed to work. And before we knew it, you know, we were being rushed into resuscitation and I was, I was holding my son uh, in resuscitation and my son's uh, airway shut down. And so he stopped breathing. And uh, I mean, those, in those moments, there's so many things that, you know, cross your mind. You know, in my case, I'd given all my focus and energy to business and to basically living a sinful life. You know, people didn't matter. You know, my wife didn't really matter. You know, my children didn't matter. Those relationships were not important, but suddenly you realize, you know, this is my flesh and blood, this is my son. And um, I don't know if you've been in one of those situations, but the room was packed, you know, in, 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 in seconds, you know, doctors and nurses flying in. Um, and they essentially had to intubate my son. So he, he was obviously not breathing for a while. And I don't know how long he was, mm. you know, not breathing for, 
but they, you know, they intubated him. And there were all kinds of complications uh, that I will never fully know of because you don't get the chance to ask any questions. And you don't want to ask any questions because what do you do in one of those situations? You're ushered into the room next door and you collapsed your knees in prayer, which sounds really crazy, doesn't it? Because... I was going to ask, so what, that, you did pray? I prayed, and, yeah. And what were you feeling at that moment? I, I prayed because there was nowhere else to go to. You know, I, 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 you know when I look back on the reasons why I prayed, I, I just believe there's an innate sense in all of us that, that God exists. And the thing is, I'd, I'd accumulated all this money, but none of that was going to make any, any difference in that situation. You know, when my son was in, in critical condition, and so my wife and I, we, both, um, we were both ushered into the room next door, and, and we prayed, and I felt, I felt guilty for praying because I'd been living such a sinful life, and uh, I'd, been, I'd been unfaithful in my marriage, I'd been ruthless in my business, I'd treated people you know, so badly for so many years, and yet there I was up against it, nowhere else to go. And, um, and we prayed, and I, I mean, I, as I prayed, I just kind of felt, I didn't know who I was praying to. I didn't know who I was praying to. Because yes, I was raised a Hindu and I, you know, we did all these ceremonies as a child and I'd had a Hindu wedding and I went to the temple and in a sense, I, was, uh, I didn't have my own faith. I was kind of living through my parents' faith. And so I was kind of just doing the things that they wanted me to do. But I felt a stronger connection with the Christian God um, who I'd, you know, learned about at uh, Kavina School in Kenya. And, and I, I was utterly blown away by the whole concept of grace, you know, God intervening in history. And so this was a God that I could relate to, you know, God who'd be taken on human flesh, um, had gone through some of the struggles maybe that I'd gone through. So I could kind of relate to this God. And uh, So is it that, that time when you were much younger, then all, all kind of comes into this moment? Is well, that what you're feeling? It, you know, what's the extraordinary thing? You know, when I look back on my life is that there were certain things that I was told about when I was younger. Um, like there was a book I was given on George Whitfield, the great evangelist George Whitfield that went to America and, and shared the Christian faith. You know, over 20 years later, I'd be working for a Christian organization in a building named after George Whitfield. And so those things that we are told about in our Christian journey at a young age, something is deposited and there's a, a, there's a moment when it suddenly makes sense. And I suppose in that moment when I was praying, I just felt a draw towards this God that I'd heard about. Um, there were other people praying as well? Absolutely. So my, I mean, my son ended up in, uh, in St. Thomas's in London. Uh, he'd been intubated. He was in critical condition. There were lots and lots of issues. Transferred to St. Th uh, to St. Thomas's where um, he was effectively on a life support machine. And he had the best doctors and nurses, as you can imagine, um, you know, caring for him. And, uh, and during that time, my wife and I just wept. You know, what do you do? Because you know? your son's long-term future was actually... I mean, it wasn't just that he was a bit sick. No, no. He, he might was, not have going to survive. Yeah, he, he was in critical condition. I mean, his airways had shut down uh, in the hospital, then transferred to St. Thomas's on a life support machine as the doctors are trying to work out what is going on. Because his airways shut down, you know. So what, you know, what triggered that? You know, what were the other issues in terms of his health? And, uh, and every day you're asking the doctors, you know, is, you know, is my son going to wake up? Uh, you know, is his eyes going to open? And, and the fourth day was very, very difficult conversation with the doctor who, 
it was one of those conversations you don't want to have, which was basically uh, along the lines of, you know, your son is in critical condition. We don't know what's going on. We're still trying to, we're still trying to work it out. And your son is not going to open his eyes for some time yet. And, and that was just, you know, that was too much to bear. But the thing is, there was this Christian couple that we'd, uh, we'd met maybe three or four months earlier. I can't quite remember the time. I'm not good with dates. Uh, it's all a bit hazy to me, but we'd met this Christian couple and they'd shown us such compassion and love. The thing is, I'd, I'd, I'd met a number of Christians over, over the years, but this Christian couple invited us into their home and uh, did a lot of uh, stuff around food. You know, just everything revolved around food. And as a South Asian, food is great because we're constantly inviting people into our, our home to eat. And um, in fact, my mother is a has come into this church uh, on a few occasions and, and is always asking me, you know, when can I feed the church? Because that's what we do as, as South Asians. And this couple, they were from America, uh, in, in the UK for a few years, and, uh, and they found out that my son was ill because they contacted my wife on her mobile and my wife told them that, look, we're in hospital, things are really bad. And, uh, and this couple, um, the woman in particular, um, wept for my son. You know, she wept. You know, I had the opportunity to speak to her um, not so long ago about the actual moment when she wept. And she said that she fell to her knees. She was so overcome with compassion that she wept for my son. And she prayed for my son and, and, uh, and got the church to pray. And the thing is, I, I knew others were praying from my own faith background. I knew my parents were praying. I knew there must have been other relatives praying, but there was something about the prayers of that couple that really impacted me. And I felt that I was somehow being lifted by their prayers. Uh, I, I'd never experienced people praying for people that you don't know that well, mm. at that kind of level. And they'd got their churches in America to pray as well. So, so my son is being prayed for people around the world. And on that fourth day, you know, despite what the consultant said, you know, your son is not going to open his eyes for some time yet, sort of conversation. You know, my, the consultant then does her ward round and, uh, and my son just suddenly uh, bolts upright in bed. Like, you know, there's no, no problem at all. He just sits up in bed, starts pulling away at the wires. And as you can imagine, there's elation and... Uh, Relief. Joy and having... I, I'm not the sort of person that weeps for anything. But for four days, I wept for my son. Wow. And then obviously you weep when you see your son, you know, sitting up in bed. And uh, yeah, part of the response for you then was you felt that you should turn up the church. Thing is, I didn't have time for religion at all. You know, money was my God. You know, I'd made money my God. So I was already worshipping money. But, you know, there was a reality check for me when my son was in critical condition. Uh, I'd got my priorities wrong. You know, I'd forgotten about my wife. I'd forgotten about my children. I'd forgotten about family. And, uh, and seeing God's intervention, because there was no way that my son was gonna sit up in bed without God's intervention. You know, I'd had that conversation with the doctors. So, so I turned to my wife and I said, why don't we go to church, to that couple's church, you know, the couple that prayed for our son. And, you know, we'll take the whole family with us you know, when the time is right. And so it, it might have been a month later, I can't remember the dates, um, but we went there as a family. 
uh, to church. And uh, if I'm honest, I, I didn't really enjoy the service because I was a restless character. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and I was, you know, a, an hour and a half sitting in a service is quite difficult for me. But I felt that I needed to go there for two Sundays, not one. I wanted them to know that I really appreciate that you prayed for my son. So turning up once would be appreciation, but turning up twice, that's... Was that's like, oh yeah, I, I committed, there was twice. I had it in my head. I want them to know twice I'm gonna to come to their church. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna to go to their house to say thank you. I'm gonna to go to their church because they were praying to their God as far as I was concerned. It's their God and I'm going to recognize that and show my appreciation. So I wasn't planning to go to church for third Sunday, but they invited me to a different church on the third Sunday. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to go to church for third Sunday. But I didn't want to say no to them because I thought, well, that's going to be, that's going to be seen to be rude. And uh, anyway, I rolled up at church for the third Sunday with my family. And I had an experience as I walked into the room. And uh, it was just that I felt something in the room. And, and having experienced something is like almost something that I could, I could touch in the air, you know, the tangible presence of God. And I listened to the, the message, uh, except this time now, you know, the, the message really, really started to resonate because you see the cross, don't you? You see it on symbols in buildings and uh, on buildings, symbols on buildings and, you know, on necklaces, but you become desensitized, don't you? the whole message. You know the message because you can see it everywhere. But it really, really impacted me that this Jesus was God Almighty, had taken on human flesh and died for a a wretched sinner like me. I mean, there wasn't any faith that was going to have me because I wasn't any good. There's no way I could earn my salvation because I couldn't do any good. But, you know, when you hear that story of God's amazing love and, and seeing my son's miraculous healing, it was probably three or four Sundays. So you, you kept coming back? I kept on coming back. And, to there was a, and that was that sense of that tangible presence of God? Absolutely. I, I just felt something in the air. You know, it was God's presence was in that place. And, you know, why was God's presence in that church? I think it's because it's a church that focuses on worshipping God. That was, that declared the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when you decided to make a choice what happened you know to a certain extent i don't think i had a choice although i clearly did have a choice but uh you know god had been at work in my life many many years before you know in that school in kenya when i first heard the christian message and there were a number of occasions over 20 years where i can see that god was reaching out to me in a very very clear way but i'd you know i was rejecting god along that journey but when I was in that church uh, a few Sundays after my son's miraculous healing, I just felt, look, this is for real, and I've now got an opportunity to, to make a commitment to see my sins forgiven and for God to come into my life. And it just seemed like, no, this is too good an opportunity to miss. You know, for, you know, for many people, they're just holding on, aren't they, to their um, independence. I, I was ready now <laughs> to give it all up uh, to God and... Um, it's just God's love is such a draw when you really, really know that that's what God has done for you. And, and for you, was that like, did it feel like a mental choice or, or was there an emotional response or I didn't, how did it feel like it? I, I didn't need to read the Bible. Uh, in a sense, I didn't need to grapple with the Bible to work out intellectually if, um, 
if God is for real, if Jesus is for real. Because I'd seen it in my, you know, I'd seen it. I'd seen my son lying there. The doctor has told me he's not going to get up. A Christian couple are praying in the name of Jesus for a miraculous healing and my son sits up. So as far as I'm concerned, God exists. So the big question for me was, is there one pathway to God or are there many pathways to God? And as a Hindu, I believed that there were many pathways to God. However, when I was in that church, I started to get a sense that, no, I believe that this is the only pathway to God because only Jesus Christ has died for the sins of humanity. And so as far as I was concerned, the step for me was now to make a commitment to this one path. And, and I was ready. I was more than ready because I'd seen it uh, you know, with my own eyes. And I went to the front of the church um, one Sunday. I think it was Sunday or it might have been a... It might have been an evening service. I can't remember. It's, um, I'm not good with dates at all. <laughs> but anyway, I went to the church and I went to the front. And uh, I think it was one or two people prayed for me on that, uh, on that day. And I just, I gave my life to Jesus. But they asked that question, you know, are there people in this room that want to give their life to Jesus? And, and what I did was I, I really did give my life um, to him. What about the people around you? Say your wife, your mum, the people are really important. Yeah. Did they think this was a great thing for you to do? Well, the thing is, the interesting thing is that my wife came with me to church because we both saw my son's miraculous healing. And, and my wife was raised a Christian, but her faith had gone to sleep. So we had a Hindu wedding. We didn't really talk about faith at all. I mean, money was my faith. And for my wife, I don't know, maybe it was her career. I'm not sure what it was, but we were all putting our worship into something, and it wasn't almighty God. Uh, but as soon as I gave my life to Christ, um, you know, for my wife, her faith came back straight away. You know, all the things that she was taught as a child, because she did go to church as a child, you know, it all started to come back. And I think the big kind of um, push for her to really make that commitment was seeing the transformation in me. Um, because I had a real extreme conversion experience in the sense that you know I gave my life to God and I really walked out of church um, very different feeling different new perspective um, new ideas just filled with God's love and so then you want to express that love don't you uh, I think I think my mother thought I might have joined a cult uh, <laughs> because I was such a ruthless ruthless man uh, before I became a follower of Jesus that you know, I wanted to do things differently. You know, we had to have integrity in our business. We had to show compassion to people and, uh, and show generosity. When you know that you're going through the crunch at a time when you might lose stuff, you know, suddenly I'm feeling, well, God is saying, well, you know, you've got to start being generous with people. But now's not the time, I'm thinking. But God has been generous with me. So things start to change. Uh, and I suppose people are asking the question, you know, what's gone on? You know, what's happened uh, with you? How's your son? My son is 12 years old now. And um, yeah, my, my son reminds me um, that God, God obviously saved my son. Um, you know, but God didn't save his own son. You know, that his son, he died that I might have life. And so he's a reminder, my son, of what God, of what God has done for us on the cross. But my son is, uh, he's doing... Yeah, he's doing great. He's, uh, he still suffers with breathing difficulties, so he has to take a, a tablet every day, but 
He doesn't have to take the asthma pump as regularly as he used to. Uh, he can run pretty quickly. He's good at gymnastics. So, you know, he's, he's strengthening uh, day by day. We like to ask people in this series, uh, how's Jesus a game changer? So, Manoj, for you, how's Jesus a game changer? In life, we're all searching for something, aren't we? We're all searching for something. You know, for me, I was searching for happiness in, uh, in wealth. The thing is, I, I kept on accumulating wealth and thinking I'm going to be more and more content each time. And the thing is, contentment never comes. And the thing is, for me, um, yeah, Jesus is a game changer because when you give your life to Jesus, his presence comes into your life. And his presence means everything that you are craving for. You were craving for stuff. We're just looking in the wrong places. But for me, you know, the peace that comes through God's presence, the joy, um, the compassion, the love, the sense of fulfillment and contentment. Jesus' presence makes all the difference in my life. And, and it would, wouldn't it? Because if God made me um, for a relationship, can I have any life outside of that relationship? And so really meaning for me only came when that relationship was connected. I mean, God was always there, but I just opened the door and said, God, come into my life. And when his presence fell into my life, that was it. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.